pull out your Bibles and your outline. We're going to continue our study, uh, this, this little mini-series called A Better Way. And, uh, you know, it, it just struck me that we have this amazing freedom to literally do anything we want to at any time. Like you really can, you can choose today to do whatever you want to do. Then you get to live with the consequences of whatever choice you've made, right? So now we all know that consequences are not all created equal. Some of those are awesome. Some of them are pretty good. Plenty of them are bad. And some of them are the worst, right? And so as we're kind of navigating through life, we are making choices each and every day and all of those choices are taking us somewhere. Now the Bible gives us a framework for making choices. Think of it like two paths that we could follow. And so if we're talking about a better way, man, I wanna know which way to go, don't you? So here's two paths that the Bible outlines. The first is in Proverbs 14 and 16. Solomon must have thought it was important. He said it twice. See, there is a way that seems right to a man or a woman, but its end is the way to death. Now, it's not just talking about physical death. It's really talking about all that death represents as a curse of the fall in Genesis 3. So the way that works is, the way that choice works is, it's you and me, we're just kind of thinking our own thoughts and we have these impressions and experiences and whatever else informs that. And we just kind of go, you know, that seems like a good thing to do. I kind of like the idea of that, so I just do it. That way leads to death. But there's another way. God spoke to his uh, people, the nation of Israel, through the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 6. And here's what he says about making choices. Stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. Now, a couple of things stand out to me from that statement the first is, it is assumed we don't know where to go. But there is a way to go. And we're supposed to ask and look. And when we see it, then we follow it. I know that sounds really simple. But sometimes I wonder if we miss a lot of pathways just because we make it so complicated. But God is for it. He's like saying, I can show you a better way. Just look. Ask for it, and then when I show it to you, follow it. Those are two ways of making choices. There is a better way to travel through life. And uh, it starts with what Jeff uh, talked about last week, resurrection life. It's like there is this moment in history. It defines everything. It is the death, burial, and resurrection, which we just saw pictured in baptism. It is that moment that informs everything. And God is saying, I want you to see that moment and then walk in light of that. Everything hinges upon that moment. For the apostle Paul, he staked everything about his life on that moment. 
that death, burial, and resurrection. We covered this last week. I just want to remind us, Romans 8, 11. He says, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So there, according to Paul, God promises to give us spiritual resurrection life, kind of in the here and now, just as we're making our way through life, and then future physical resurrection at the time of the return of Christ. So he's making this promise. It all hinges upon uh, that moment in history with our Savior. It's like that is the start, as Jeff said last week, that's the start of the better way. That's where we begin to really follow Christ in a God-honoring way. Eugene Peterson uh, paraphrases this verse this way in the message. He says, it stands to reason, doesn't it, that if the alive and present God who raised Jesus from the dead moves into your life, that idea of dwelling, he'll do the same thing in you that he did in Jesus, bringing you alive to himself. When God lives and breathes in you, and he does as surely as he did in Jesus, you are delivered from that dead life. With his spirit living in you, your body will be as alive as Christ's. And I gotta ask you, do you really believe that? It sounds like one of those things that's almost too good to be true. Like, could that really be true? That the God who raised Jesus from the dead is in me and he wants me to find a better way. I hope that you believe that. That's what we're gonna talk about for the rest of this series. We're gonna talk about this starting place of resurrection life and then how it affects the rest of life. Let me mention a few things that we get with resurrection life. The first is we get a life informed by the way, the truth, and the life. So the living word took on flesh, dwelt among us, laid down his life, rose again, and gave us all the instructions that we need to walk well in this broken world. So you get a life that is informed by the way, the truth, and the life. You also get a life enabled by the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. That's a pretty big deal. That's probably worth giving some thought to. When you feel like you're powerless, that's a lie of the enemy. You are powerless all on your own, but you have the power of God living within you. Lastly, you have a life fortified by the assurance of future personal resurrection. Uh, other New Testament writer calls that the anchor, the steadfast anchor of the soul. That was the place of hope, knowing that there was a day I was promised by my creator and my savior that I would rise again with him. Uh, the apostle Peter talks about this idea of resurrection life this way in 2 Peter 1. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that 
Through them, you may become partakers of the divine nature. That sounds like a better way, doesn't it? Having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of the sinful desire. That way that seems right to a man or a woman, but that way that leads to death. That's what we have escaped if we have resurrection life in Christ. So the power that we need for spiritual vitality and godly living, we access that through intimate knowledge of Christ, particularly his death and his resurrection. That's where our power comes from, according to Peter. Now contrast that with uh, something Eugene Peterson says in his book, Practice Resurrection. Great book, by the way. He says, when we squander life on anything less than the God revealed in Jesus and made present in the spirit, we miss out on life itself. Resurrection life, the life of Jesus. So with that as a bit of an introduction. Let's talk about this better way that's tied to the resurrection life we explored last week. Um, As we get into this, I want to kind of pull it all together. Remember in Luke 6, we talked about an upside down kingdom, the kingdom of God that Jesus was establishing and ushering in with his life. That, That kingdom which is associated with resurrection life, it turns everything upside down and it reorders everything about our lives so that we're not just walking in that way that seems right to us. It reorients our approach to relationships. That's what we're gonna talk about today. It reprioritizes our use of our resources. So, you know, we don't think of what we have as ours like we're owners. What does the Bible call us? Stewards, that's right. See, that's a different way of thinking about our stuff. And then lastly, it refocuses our view of rewards. There are rewards to be thought about, but we got to think about them in a biblical perspective. So this morning, we're going to talk about reorienting our approach to relationships. And I want to talk for just a second about what we mean by the idea of approach. Here's the big idea. You and I, we come to every single relationship in our life and we bring with us our story. We bring with it our struggles. We bring with it our strategies for dealing with a broken, sin-wrecked world, right? We bring all of that with us into every single relationship that we have. And a lot of that stuff is like unconscious. We don't even try, like breathing, we did, so we got to ask some great questions to unveil or expose our approach. So here's some questions I want to give you for your consideration. What meaning or purpose do your relationships have? That may sound like a simple question, but give it some thought. Why do you enter into relationships to begin with? Why do you cultivate the relationships that you have? Why do you stay in relationships even when they seem impossible? What do you expect from your relationships? When Kimberly and I do uh, premarital counseling, one of the things we will always talk with a couple about is their negotiating life together is we'll contrast desires with demands. See, there's nothing wrong with having desires. We all have them. 
But when they become a demand, what we're saying is, you must do this, be this, whatever, so that I'm okay. And then if you don't, well, I'm not okay. That's a dangerous way to do relationships. But we all are capable of doing that all of the time. What do you expect from your relationships? What responsibilities do you have in or for your relationships? I have found that my natural inclination is to do as little as possible. See, I like to minimize my responsibility and uh, really exaggerate everybody else's responsibility. Can you relate to that? Yeah. So I have to think about in my approach to relationships, is that the better way? For me to minimize my responsibilities and exaggerate everybody else's? Probably not. How do you navigate the various relationships that you have? Are there any distinctions? In other words, here's an example. Does my spouse and do my children actually get my leftovers because I'm so pouring into all of the other relationships that I have in life? I know I'm stepping on some toes. But isn't that the easiest place to give leftovers? Because we're so familiar. It's just, it's a safe place. Like we're all gonna be okay. Resurrection life reorients our approach to relationships. And, And I think one of the greatest transformations that happens is we go from being takers to givers. Takers to givers. We live in a broken world, you guys, and it's hard. And the most natural thing in the world is to take whatever you can get because there seems to be so little. But resurrection life means that I can live all of my life giving, not out of my own resources, but out of the resources that I have been given as a child of the king in this upside down kingdom. I hope that encourages you. I know that it challenges you. It challenges me. But, but that's, we want to invite God to reorient our approach to relationships. So here's where it begins. Resurrection life comes with a relational mandate. A relational mandate. And it is the great commission. I don't know if you've thought about it this way. Sometimes we can get so practically minded that we just sort of think of it like marching orders, like just go do this, very mechanical. But think about this. Here it is, Matthew 28, 19. Go therefore and what is it? Make disciples. Now think about what a disciple is. Was it ever in the Bible? Can you think of a place where it's impersonal? Where it's distant, detached? No, it's always intensely personal. Like to be a disciple, that's a follower. That's like right here, man. We're walking through life together, close. We're known, we're understood. I mean, it's intimate. So this great commission that Christ gave all of his church, it's a relational mandate. He's saying, I want you to cultivate relationships with purpose. And it's all about fulfilling the redemptive purposes of God. It wasn't just given to the 12. It wasn't just given to the earliest Christian leaders. It's not just given to our staff and our elders. It's given to you. 
every single person in this room, if you have entrusted your life to Christ, you have been called to make disciples, to engage this relational mandate. And it isn't merely relational. It's not just social. It's spiritually transformative. It actually changes us when we give ourselves to it properly. So we're, we're talking about like this is the essence of the assignment that Jesus Christ gave his church. It is discipleship. We call it cultivating connected followers of Christ. That's just our way of talking about making disciples. Those connections, upward with God, backward with our story, withward with the body, inward with our gifting, and outward with the mission, that's all about making disciples, this relational mandate. David Platt says this about disciple-making in his book, uh, Radical, another great read. Disciple-making involves inviting people into a larger community of faith where they will see the life of Christ in action and experience the love of Christ in person. Isn't that great? Now, when I read that, I started thinking about all these guys that so impacted my life. Kent Epling, college young life leader in the early 80s. And that guy pursued me and I couldn't believe it. I was kind of a nerd, I was a loner. I didn't think God was interested in me and I certainly didn't think anybody else was. But he said, hey, you don't know me, I don't know you, but let's hang out. Let's build a friendship and you can just kind of walk with me through, I'm a little further down the road, you just walk with me through life. I'll show you, he didn't use these words, but the better way. I was like, okay, I'm up for that. Came to Christ as a result. Then I get to college. And this guy is introduced to me. Um, I was arrogant and foolish and all kinds of other stuff. But I get to meet this guy named Bo Miller. And I kind of thought that it was his treat to disciple me. He was on staff with Campus Crusade. Uh, I couldn't have been more wrong. But you know what? Bo was so patient with me. He took so much initiative with me. I probably ought to write him a thank you note every week and just go, bro, thank you for putting up with me for four years uh, in college. But he invested in my life relationally. I knew that he cared about me. Fast forward, I end up in Little Rock, Arkansas, working for a guy named Dennis Rainey. He was a Christian leader that was admired probably by tens of thousands of people. And I got to be in his inner circle. And here's what I saw there. He was the same guy there as he was everywhere else. He's a husband, he's a dad, he's a Christian leader, he's a writer, he's a speaker, but there was no difference between the man that he was when we're sitting around drinking coffee and talking about the work for the day and when he's standing on a platform speaking to tens of thousands of people. Same guy, deeply affected my life. I thought you can be a very visible leader and be the real deal everywhere you go. Huge impact because he brought me close. He let me see close. Howard Hendricks, one of the finest biblical teachers I've ever heard in my life. 
If anybody could just keep everybody away, it would be Howard Hendricks. But you know what? You follow that guy's life, 50, 60 years of ministry, and there is man after man after man after man who said, that guy brought me up close. He let me see his heart and hear about his love for God and his struggles with life and all of that thing. I got to be one of those guys. I can't believe it, but it changed my life. And then when I came here as a pastor, young, inexperienced, never planted a church before, God put this guy named Bill Wellens. He was one of the founders of Fellowship in Little Rock. And uh, he basically just said, call me anytime. Whatever you need, I'm your guy. And I needed him badly. (laughs) There was a whole lot I didn't know what to do. And I went through some of the darkest days of my entire life in the early years of ministry. And I could call Bill anytime and he would answer. Invite people into that inner circle up close so they can see your heart and your life. That's discipleship. It's, it's not sterile. It's not distant. It's very intimate and close and life-changing. Resurrection life comes to us with a relational mandate. Paul and Timothy practiced this in 2 Timothy 2.2. We learn a pattern for reproducing resurrection life. Let me read it to you. What you this is what Paul says to Timothy. What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Now, one thing that jumps out immediately there is that's four generations that's happening there. So Paul is pouring into Timothy. He's saying, Timothy, I want you to pour into faithful men. And part of what their criteria is gonna be that they're gonna pour into faithful men after that, four generations. Here's some observations from that text. Truth is transferable. Truth is transferable. We live in this age where truth has become relative. You can kind of believe whatever you want to. And Paul would say, no, there is objective truth that is knowable. You can understand it and you can transmit it to someone else. And that's the pattern. You know it, you grow in it, and get to this in a second, and then you give it away relationships are the medium. Nothing wrong with speaking from a stage, posting on Facebook, speaking at a conference. That's all fine. But the pattern, the strategy was relational. It always was and it always will be. Spiritual multiplication is how it works out. And it's the idea that just think about if everybody in this room invested their life into another a new person every year, just imagine. And then all of those people invested in another life every year. You see where that goes? It's like a snowball. It's like an avalanche. It's a beautiful picture of God's strategy. Invest in a few to reach the many. Jesus modeled that. Depth over breadth is the biblical pattern. So I don't really care how many people you know. What I wanna know is what your relationship is like with all the people that you know. Like, are you talking about the weather and the NFL draft? Like, is that the depth of those relationships? Or do you go beyond that? Are you getting to that place where 
things got to change because it's brought into the light. That's the depth that discipleship requires. It's not mass produced. It requires great intentionality, but you can do it. You've been given everything pertaining to life and godliness. Now, following this pattern is going to require what we're saying today is relational reorientation. So in some ways, I'm asking you to sort of set aside your trust in your ability to relate well. I'm sure you can, but let's set that aside for a moment and let's kind of consider how we approach this relationship thing. The first is this. We need to receive God's word in order to know, grow, and reproduce. We need to receive God's word. James says, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. You got to receive it. But you got to go beyond just knowing it. And that's kind of where we are in the North American church these days. We equate knowing something, like giving intellectual assent to something, to actual transformation. And nothing could be further from the truth. There's plenty of heretics that know stuff. <laughs> But they, but they don't buy it. They don't embrace it and they don't live it. So the idea here is that you first, you know it, then you apply it and you grow as a result. And then the loop isn't closed until you give it away, till you find somebody else who needs to know what you know and needs to grow how you grew. And then they are prepared to give it away just like you. Colossians 3.16 says this, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Us uh, independent-minded people, we read that and we think it's, it's just referring to us. The you there is plural. So what, what, he's at, what Paul's actually saying here is, let the word dwell in all of you in this community of faith richly. Like we ought to all be familiar enough with the scriptures that it just rolls off the tongue. Whenever we're in conversation, when we're doing life together, I'm not talking about being a Bible thumper. I'm just saying, it's just, it comes out. Like what else would we talk about in terms of life, how to live well? Let it dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. There is this expectation that we would be so familiar with the word that it would just come out in how we interact with one another. I wanna go back to 2 Timothy because I just gave you verse two. I wanna include verse one and show you how even Paul is talking about knowing and growing and reproducing. See, verse one says, you then, my child, speaking to Timothy, you be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. So receive the word to grow, to be strengthened. But don't stop there. What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also receive to reproduce. Receive to grow, receive to reproduce. That's the pattern. Secondly, you may not buy this today, but I want to ask you to think about it. Holiness, not happiness is the primary purpose of our relationships. Holiness, not happiness. 
Now, how many of you throughout your life have come to relationships thinking about, you know what, I just wanna invite God to use this relationship to kind of knock away all the stuff in me that stands in the way of growth and maturity and fruitfulness. And, you know, I just wanna get as close to Christ as I can. I know God's gonna use this relationship to do that. Or are you like, man, we just love hanging out. Man, we just click. We just love the same stuff and do the same stuff and think the same way. I just love being around this person. They're so much fun. See what I'm saying? Now, there's nothing wrong with having fun and being with people that think like you and do the stuff you like to do. But what is the core purpose from God's perspective of our relationships? I would argue it's holiness. That's the work that he wants to do in us. And there's nothing on earth that he can use more effectively than the relationships that we're in. When we have that mindset, it changes things. It causes us to engage in a new way. I'm honestly afraid that we're so relationally fragile that we can't go after that in most of our relationships. We're so careful, we're so cautious. And I don't mean that we need to be careless. I just mean, what if we were to assume that there's nobody on earth that God wants to use in our lives than the people that we relate to every day to change us, to help us grow? I think we would approach our relationships a little differently. Proverbs 27, five through six, better is an open reprimand than concealed love. Do you believe that? Do you welcome correction and instruction? That's hard, isn't it? But if I'm thinking about this is God's method of changing me, then I'm like, come on, bring it on. I wanna hear it. I don't wanna live in the dark. Ephesians 4, 15 and 25, speak the truth in love. I got to love you so much to tell you some things that might be hard to hear because there's no way that you or I are ever going to change until we come face to face with that kind of stuff. Holiness, not happiness, is God's primary purpose for the relationships that we have. Lastly, how we relate to one another is about calling, not chemistry. You've heard me say this about community groups before, but I just want to kind of apply it to everything now. If we look through our New Testament and we are a Christ follower, then what we would come to the conclusion is that the way I relate to everybody around me has nothing to do with our compatibility. It has everything to do with the good work that God is completing in each of us along the way. And we have instructions, countless instructions for how to do this. But I'm just gonna give you a few and I could go on for hours. Romans 12, 10, love one another with brotherly affection. That is not talking about biological families, right? talking about the church, the body of Christ, the community of faith, love one another with brotherly affection, the kind that you would expect in a biological family. Outdo one another in showing honor. Is that your approach? When you're dealing with the people that you're dealing with is, are you going, Lord, I want to show 
honor to this person. I want to esteem them as one who is created in the image of God. That's my objective. Man, that's challenging. Philippians 2, 3. Do nothing, zero, from selfish ambition or conceit. Man, that's a tall order. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Be a giver, not a taker. Come into every relationship that you have and go, Lord, I want to be about the spiritual welfare of this person. And I'm going to trust that you love me so much that you can take care of me. What if we all did that? This would be a crazy, crazy place. Galatians 5.13, you were called to freedom, brothers. Yeah, you can, you can do anything you want to do. You're called to freedom. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. Do you see yourself generally as a servant or a master? We're called to serve. Romans 12, I mean, these are just unthinkable. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Don't be haughty, but associate with the lowly, the people that can't give you anything in return. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all. That's resurrection life. That is a better way to live. That's the kind of life you will never, ever regret to your last breath. And if nothing else works, Matthew 7, 12 is good. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. There is a better way to travel through life. The way we say it here is, together is better, right? Together is better. So I'm going to come back to something. I know you guys are getting worn out uh, hearing me talk about that. I'm going to keep coming. I'm just going to keep saying this over and over and over again until I die. We were meant to travel in community. And there are four relationships that are absolutely essential to traveling well. So here they are. I know you've heard them before, but I'm going to say them again. Every single person in this room needs a Paul. You need somebody who's further along that can say, hey, come on. I, I am where you want to go. Let me show you the way. And you know they've got a Paul. And they've got a Paul. And they've got a Paul, right? You need a Paul in your life, a mentor, somebody that you can go to and receive biblical counsel and direction. You need a Timothy in your life. You need somebody. You may not believe this. You need somebody that you have to pour into. And I say have to. It's a privilege. But here's what it does. When you show up and you've got to give something away, you're going to make sure you have something to give away. 
So all of a sudden, your devotional life, man, it takes on some real energy because I want to have something to give away. You begin to pray like never before. Dear God, please help me. <laughs> I, you see, I'm, I, you begin to give yourself to your own walk in such a way that you'll have something to pour into another person. You need a Timothy in your life. You need a Barnabas in your life. You need somebody that knows the absolute best and worst, everything about you, and they're not going anywhere. You just know that you can sit with them and just be as ugly and out of sorts and everything in the world, and they're just going to go, man, I get it, dude. I'm not going anywhere. I love you. I'm going to speak the truth and love to you, but I'm going to be with you as you try to grow and change. And then as we've been talking about the last year, we all need a Nicodemus. We need people that we are trying to reach with the good news of the gospel. That's the mandate. That's what we've been called to do is tell people about this beautiful God that we know and this resurrection life that he's given us. Traveling companions. I, I just want to ask you to prayerfully pursue that. And it doesn't have to happen tomorrow. But just trust God. I just say, Lord, I'm going to trust you with this. I'm going to take some risks and uh, see what you provide. Relationships. It's like that's the fabric that God uses to work in all of us. So I want to ask you just to take a moment and uh, ask the Lord what would be an adjustment that you might make in terms of your approach to relationships. Maybe it's just a different way of thinking about some things. Maybe it's some actual tangible steps that you need to take to relate differently. Whatever it is, just receive it and then apply it and see what God does in the days ahead, all right? Take a few moments and consider that.